You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Annie Mitchell, welcome back. Father Hezekiah, it is good to be back. Yes, it is how's good. How's your Lent going? ICC family. Well, you know, how's my Lent going? You're still standing. Well, it's one of those moments when you're like, oh, I wish it was, you know, like, oh. you know, it's like these first few days, week, first two weeks, you know, you're just still getting into it. You know, you're wading in and you feel those moments when you're, when, if you're, you know, as you're taking it more seriously that you do, do two things, you're, you kind of reject the whole thing because you're like, mm-hmm, you know, and, and then the other times when you give in and you're like, and then you're like, oh, I really didn't need that second plate of food. <laughs> Probably not really within the Lenten spirit. You know? <laughs> so. Well, you know, thank Genesis. God we have 40 days, right? That's right. Here we are. Right. Here we Genesis are. Chapter 12. Yes. For the second Sunday of Lent, we will be reading from the book of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4a. Yeah, because 4B, Catholics in the 4B thing, or the church really isn't into 4B, it. she's into yeah. 4A, but not 4B. We 4A into things, <laughs> not 4B. Okay, things. that was very funny, yes. Genesis Psalm, chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, then Psalm what, 33? Psalm 33 is our responsorial psalm for this weekend. The gospel is Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And the epistle is Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8b through 10. Yeah. So, are you ready to go to Genesis? Here we go. Genesis, chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from the land of your kinsfolk and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you. Abraham went as the Lord directed him. Okay, so let's get our bearings here to to start things off here, Father. I mean, I know this is the very beginning of the story of Abraham, but do we know what's going on in his life at this point? Well, yes, we do. And this is this is why we have to start with this question, because while you're reading it, I'm looking in my RSV, which I very much like, my Catholic edition RSV. But, you know, as, as they say, every translator is a traitor and every commentator 
I'm sorry, falls short unless it's St. Ephraim the Syrian, okay? Sure. Yeah. But, but but here, I, I just happened as you were reading over it, I happen to see that in my trusty little Catholic RSV, there's an asterisk there. It says now with an asterisk. You see that, Andy? Do you have an RSV there? I, I think you have um, I do. Less. Hang if on. You have it, uh, my RSV asterisk, it, which means there's a little comment, not in the footnotes, but at the end of your Old Testament, there's some additional commentary that the RSV, the translators throw mm-hmm. in here. Yep. I have the asterisks as well. And so they've got a little thing here. I said, oh, no, look it up. What are the asterisks in 12 verse one? It says with Abraham's call, I'm going to the end of my Old Testament now. You may not have this in your Bible, and you don't even have to go there to try to find it, but it's at the end of your Old Testament, is the way the RSV Catholic edition, Ignatius, puts it out there. There's well, little, there's my little Bible notes. has it at the bottom of the page. Yes, well, those are your footnotes. Maybe yeah. it's got the asterisk. So what does your asterisk say on 12.1? My asterisk says, with Abraham's call, sacred history in yes. the strict sense begins. This is my problem. <laughs> what yeah what does that mean you know this is the problem of this of these false divisions in the bible that end up happening to help people understand where we're at right and so the age of the patriarchs begins here sure i've got a problem with that because the problem the thing is in genesis chapter 11 we have the genealogy which leads Mm -hmm. to abraham and you can't dislocate chapter 12 verse 1 from the rest of chapter 11. this is a major error because if you look back you realize that these are the descendants of ultimately noah and his three sons who yeah. are mentioned to us in genesis chapter 9 multiple times but there you have it, genesis chapter 9 verse 18 right and then and then their genealogies this is a genealogy of shem who receives the blessing of abraham in genesis chapter 9 verse 26 receives the blessing of abraham sorry of noah whatever i just said noah mm-hmm. blesses his son shem shem then has all of these sons who this whole thing concludes then with Abram, who is the descendant of Noah and Shem and the rightful descendant to the throne of Noah. It's very important to understand this because this is the whole point of chapter 11 is that Abram doesn't come in out of the blue, like, you know, deus ex machina. God chooses him from Ur of the Chaldees because I don't know. He happened to like it the way Abraham nice. looked, or maybe yeah. because this, no, let's, so we need to contextualize Abraham very quickly. Those that have done our salvation history study with me before, you can go back and watch Swords and Serpents, in which we spend a substantial amount of time building to this point. And so you can go listen to that if you want, but but suffice it to say here that Abram is the descendant of Noah, who is ultimately the descendant of, of Enoch, and ultimately adam okay and uh and, and which helps us understand this entire calling because abram's being called out of ur of the chaldees which is which is east of of the holy land we'll bring up the map here you can see ur of the chaldees and he's gonna basically he's gonna follow the fertile crescent you can see the fertile crescent there on this map he'll follow the fertile crescent and eventually come into the holy land here okay and we'll, we'll pull down the map and and he's gonna find his way to the great city of ultimately jerusalem now he's going to take a couple little bit sidewinders along the way he's going to get into egypt and get himself into a little bit of trouble there but ultimately abraham's going to come back and this whole story is going to come to a climax really in chapter 14 verse 17 18 and following when he meets melchizedek Mm -hmm. 
who St. Ephraim tells us is none other than Shem, his forefather, the oldest son of Noah. You can go back and listen to my talk, Swords and Serpents. Okay. So Abraham's being called out of the earth of the Chaldees. The only thing we need to know now is we're going to pull this map back up. And you can see Ur of the Chaldees. And if you run a line directly west of Ur of the Chaldees, you're going to hit the great city of Jerusalem. Well, why do I make that point? Because we have to go back then, pull down this map now, and we're going to go back to Genesis chapters 3 and 4. In Genesis chapter 3, the casting out of Adam and Eve from paradise, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24, he, that is God, drove out the man, that is Adam, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with the flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And so if we follow the, ge the geography of, uh, of this whole story, of course, we know the Garden of Eden is, is revealed to us as a mountain because rivers flow out of it. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, the rivers flow out of it, and therefore it is a mountain or a hill or whatever the case may be. And if you go east of that, then that's the direction of exile. And just, oh, voila, Abraham's called from exactly east of Jerusalem. Why? Because the ancient biblical peoples believed that Jerusalem was the original location of the Garden of Eden. Now, whether you believe that or not, that's beside the point. The point is to be able to understand what the biblical people receiving this text at the hand of Moses would have been thinking about. And they would have been thinking about none other than the very mountain to which God was calling them. And of course, the people receiving the book of Genesis are the Israelite people coming out of the coming out of Egypt and being told that God's going to give them the promised land. The promised land is, of course, the holy land. And the why is it being given to them? Because God's about to restore in them his original plan or through them. He's going to do what he promised to Abraham, which is what we read in Genesis chapter 12. And that is that through them, all the nations will be blessed and be filled with the life of God again. So through Abraham, the restoration of what happened with the fall of Adam is going to begin to take place. Of course, we know that only comes with fulfillment in Jesus Christ, but it begins here with the calling of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees in the exact opposite direction than exile, right? Exile's east, Abraham's called west, and hits that city of Jerusalem, where ultimately he's going to end up offering his son as a prefigurement of the our heavenly father, who gives us his son for the life of the world, okay? So, you well, said what's going on in life of Abraham. Interesting in light of the gospel that we'll be reading in a little while. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. A preview there. Absolutely. Huh. So that's what's going on in the life of Abraham, called out of the Chaldees because he's going to be called uh, one to be re restored to the mountain of God. Okay. Yeah. But why is God wanting him to leave his family and his father in order to do this? Well, it's, it's simply because they're living in a, in a pagan environment right mm -hmm. he has to get out of dodge if you will or <laughs> he's got to get out of this pagan environment just as moses had to get out of egypt or or elijah had to flee get away from ahab and the in the sinful people at that time right remember because elijah is going to also do his own getting out we'll talk about that in a minute and so he's to leave his father and mother now the, the maybe the bigger question for us is why the church is giving to us, this to us now, right? Leave right. your father and your in your homeland. 
because we are now standing well in the midst of Lent. Mm-hmm. And Lent, my brothers and sisters, is not about you. Hello? Okay, so maybe a little bit of a revelation. It's about the catechumens. Yeah? Now, I recently gave a talk at the Institute on getting ready for Lent, in which I talked about how we participate in Lent. But I didn't really get into this, actually, in that talk. And maybe I should have. But Lent, in its original form that we receive today, that is a 40-day preparation, was a preparation for the catechumen who was preparing for baptism. And that catechumen in the early church, my brothers and sisters, had to leave father and home, mother and it's a homeland to get out. Still happens a lot today. Yeah. Yeah, it does happen a lot today. And we all with them now have to get ready to do the same, right? To leave behind our old life. We may come to life in God. And so that ultimately the church giving us this thing. But in the life of Abraham, ultimately, it's because he finds himself as a descendant of the fallen Adam. But God wants him to be a descendant of God, not a son of the devil in exile, but a son of God in paradise. So he has to leave his that 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 background and come back and be restored to the family of God found in the promised land. Well, you answered my last question about why we would be hearing this in Lent. I mean, it sounds. Yeah. You know, talking well, about Lent as a journey, it, it does fit. I'm going to give you a quotation from St. Bede, the Venerable. Ooh, the Venerable Bede. The Venerable Bede. He says this. In this, his going forth by divine command from the land, from his kin and from the house of his father, it is clear that all the sons of his promise, among whom are we also must imitate him, We go forth from a land when we renounce the pleasures of the flesh. Now think about the catechumen and think about you during Lent also. From our kin when in the measure, okay, we go, I'll I'll go back one sentence. When we go forth from our land, when we renounce the pleasures of the flesh, from our kin when in the measure possible for humans, we make an effort to rid ourselves of all the vices with which we are born. We go forth from the house of our father when, for love of the heavenly life, we want to leave the world itself with its head, the devil. All of us, in fact, because of the first disobedience, are born into the world as sons of the devil. But through the grace of regeneration, all those who belong to the seed of Abraham are made sons of God. Because our father who is in heaven says to us, that is, to his church, Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Okay, Uh, I'll add to that just a couple sentences from St. Caesareus of Arles, who says, We believe and perceive all these things fulfilled in us, brothers, through the sacrament of baptism. Our land is our body, and we go forth properly from our land if we abandon our carnal habits to follow the footsteps of Christ. Okay, and so forth. I mean, you can now apply this as the fathers do every aspect of our life, right? The life of Abraham, as he is a father of in faith, right? Faith is 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 giving ourselves to the to fully to God, yeah, and and receiving from Him that which which is unseen to us, but is told to us by the Lord, and we entrust ourselves totally to Him, and where He is now taking us to this newness of life. The catechumen in the early church doesn't know what's about to happen they're left in the dark you know now today we make theologians out of the catechumens right you got to go through your catechism in the catholic church you got to go into all the details you got to 
make sure you know all the. They didn't know a lot. What they had was the witness of the Christian, which was their love for one another. It wasn't until the weeks just before their baptism that they were given the Our Father. They were given the creed, what they're to believe. Uh, it wasn't until the night of the baptism that they actually knew that they were going to like, 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 here you go. We're baptizing you. You're doing what? Wow. They didn't know. Now you're going to eat. And this, the Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus. What? They didn't know. Yeah. And so this fully entrusting of ourselves as the catechumen does to the plan of God now is what is what the church is calling us is what Abraham did here in chapter 12. Wow. So the catechumen very much like Abraham, not exactly knowing, having to place the trust uh, in the Lord. He, he certainly wasn't Googling Palestine. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he didn't have a Google map or GPS. To no, God is uh, the land to which I'm to take you. Okay, Lord. Dad. See you later. See you later. Wow. Led by the spirit. Intense. That's yeah. intense. And brings new light to the responsorial psalm. You always talk about how the psalm kind of brings out the theme of the first reading. You mm -hmm. see that in here. Lord, let your mercy be on us as we place our trust in you. Yeah. And and I think I think uh, uh, let's, I want to read through this psalm, but just to think about Abraham, as you said, wow, it's Abraham right there. This psalm is Abraham. Mm -hmm. And it's also us because we who find ourselves also exiled so oftentimes through our sin. And it's this time in Lent when you start to see those, your sins start to like, they're starting to come up. The devil's starting to attack. The arrows are being shot at you right now. I, I, this is happening. I mean, for anybody who takes Lent seriously, this is, this is what happens. So listen, upright is the word of God. And all his works are trustworthy. He loves justice and right of the kindness of the Lord. The earth is full. See the eyes of the Lord are upon those who fear him. Upon those who see Abraham's not forgotten. He's out in Ur of the Chaldees. And he's way out there. He's not forgotten. Upon those who hope in his kindness to deliver them from death and preserve them in spite of famine. Our soul waits for the Lord who is our help and our shield. May your kindness, O Lord, be upon us who have put our hope in you, no matter how far you are. And Abraham was like, it's like, he's like the prodigal son in some ways, right? He finds himself way out there. And yet he entrusts himself to the Lord, no matter what. And then the Lord leads him to his salvation. That's pretty incredible. Well, that I think gives us some interesting insights into what we're going to read in the gospel this weekend in Matthew chapter 17. Shall we move on to that? Matthew chapter 17. Well, give me time to get there, Annie. Matthew chapter mm -hmm. 17. And for those out there, get your Bible. I hope you're not doing these Bible studies without a Bible out. Oh, man. Boy, if I could have a, just a little insight into your life and you'll see whether you got your Bible out. You got to have it out. Wait, you can see, can't you? You can see. Oh, no? yeah. I can, I'm watching. Watching everybody get that Bible out. Okay, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. All right. Yes, yes, verse 1 through 9 is what we're reading. Yep. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. 
Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elisha. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, Do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Wow, Father, I don't know. I, I didn't have a question about this, but it was just occurring to me. Like he says, do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And I can just imagine being Peter James and wait, what? Until I'm raised from the what are you talking about, Jesus? Like that's well, uh, kind of crazy. I, I'm going to take that as your as your normal first question, which is, give us a little context. Give us a little context because, here. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, it's because, like it, last week we were in the desert with Jesus. Now we're up on this mountain. Okay. Yep. No. Now that's a that's a bigger that's so. Let's go. Let's take this in steps. Okay. Real quick context, and then the bigger context, and then of course sure. it's all going to be context, 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 because a context without a text without a context is no text at all bingo but so look at here we're in chapter 17 verse 1 i'm just gonna my eyes are just gonna go move up in the verses to 16 chapter 16 verse 21 from that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised Oh, so he's been talking about it. He's been, they've been having a big old conversation about, let's just wrap our mind around this one, guys. <laughs> I, they're going to kill me and I'm going to, I'm going to, they're not going to have the last word. Okay. So this is the apostle going to wrap their minds around what Jesus is telling them is going to happen. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And then now you have this. So, so it's not out of the blue. That's my only point, right? It's not out of the blue. There's been a conversation taking place. We'll look a little bit more at that conversation as we come back to this. But first, let's go to that second question you had. And that is, what happened? The last time I knew Jesus was being tempted in the desert. Isn't that our last gospel? That was our last gospel. Yeah, for the first Sunday. Jesus is baptized. Jesus is tempted by the devil. Jesus says that man should not live by bread alone, right? That's what's going on. And presto, bingo, we're on Mount Tabor and Jesus being transfigured, talking about the resurrection, right? Yeah. Now, for maybe for most people walking in mass on Sunday, they're like, yeah, well, I don't know, you know it's transfiguration. I, I don't know what happened first or second, but for our Institute family, you guys know that we've left the entire center section out of the gospel and just dropped out in between these two things, right? And maybe, you know, for for good reason, we are now heading to the cross and the church has to kind of put on the afterburners and say, well, we're going to, to now begin that procession in. But what happens in between is critically important to your first question, which is, which is, 
he tells them not to tell anybody till it goes to the race from the dead. I mean, it just seems out of the blue. And there's a little bit more of the context that we need to get, mm-hmm. which we've done before. There's two things I'm not going to do today. Um, we just went through the whole, you know, for those that have been with us over the last year, we just did a death march through the gospel of Luke <laughs> verse by verse. We kept going back to the transfiguration. Yeah, we went to the transfiguration like 400 times. We're not going to do that to people again. But I will just point out to you this, just a couple of things here. And that is, look at just chapter 13, verse 57. 13, verse 15. And they took offense at him. Hmm. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. And then they go ahead and tell what he did to John the Baptist, which means what Herod's going to want to do to Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. And so things are, things have gotten to like a bit of a fever pitch here. Take a look at chapter 15, verse one. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said to him, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? So they're coming out of the, you know, woodwork. Now they're starting to get pretty offensive they're trying to go after jesus i hope you get a, get a sense of that chapter 16 verse 1 and the pharisees and sadducees came and, and 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 uh came to test him and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven now you have to realize that right above that the first the paragraph right above that jesus is, multiplies loaves and fishes for the second time hmm. and they know it right they're watching him so so these are people, they've become blind to what Jesus has been doing. Their ears are closed. Their eyes are shut to the miraculous work that he's doing. And they're simply jealous of him because there's crowds. I mean, crowds that are following him and they've begun the hunt. Big in, Now, they began the hunt way back in early in the gospel, but they've put it now. The hunt's coming out. They're, they're, they're planning on arresting him. They're planning on putting him to death. Which is why now Jesus turns to his his disciples, his apostles, and says, and just says it out, right? They're going to kill me. That's what he's saying, right? In chapter in chapter sixteen, verse twenty one, they're going to kill me. That's read it that way, right? You see those guys over there? They're going to kill me. But don't worry about it because I'm going to rise from the dead. It's almost like it's almost like that urgent and that that moment because the apostles are starting to freak out, right? They've left home. They've left everything for Jesus. And now it looks as though death is certainly coming for him and for them. Right. And they're getting scared, which is when then, and then now we have this exchange, which leads to the transfiguration, which we have to do a text without context, no text at all is here in verse 22, chapter 16, verse 22. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So Peter rebukes Jesus saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you, right? They, in other words, you, you, they cannot, they won't kill you, right? And Peter does this regular, like in the gospel, he's like, no way. He does this at the Last Supper. He's like, Mm-mm, I'm not going to let it happen, right? Mm-hmm. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And then Jesus told his disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, the cross, you and I are like, that's nice, Jesus. We're going to pick up the cross. We're going to put it around our neck and we're all going to be Christians. That's not what that meant to them. 
The cross was the most horrific, cruel death that the, that the evil Romans could possibly do to God's people. And Jesus says, yep, you got to do it. We're going to the cross. And then we have the transfiguration. So Jesus then takes Peter, who has just said no way, and says, you got to see something bigger than what you're seeing. You're, you're seeing things on a very human level here, Peter. And I, I need you to start to see something bigger. Because Peter heard the first part, right? They're going to put me to you to death, right? And Peter's like, no, 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 no. And he didn't hear the rest of the sentence. So Jesus takes him up to the top of the mountain. Let's just focus on Peter for a minute here, because that's the context of the conversation, right? right. And all of a sudden, Jesus just reveals himself, reminding Peter and all of us, of the baptism, the theophany, God speaking about who this is. Remind Peter of who this is. And, and we're not talking about an earthly kingdom, Peter. Your profession that I am the Christ, which took place in chapter 16, right here, there's, a, there's another context, right? Chapter 16, verse 13 and following, mm -hmm. Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the king. But what kind of king is Peter talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, now, Jesus, he said, no, wait a minute. You got to go up the mountain with me. You got to start to see a bigger picture, which is what happens, right? This is why Jesus does this. In fact, I'm going to share with you a quotation. I've got it over here somewhere. St. Ephraim. Of course. Ephraim. Of course. I've held on to this quote for 20, just about 20 years. I've had this quote from St. Ephraim. Okay. Yeah. Moses and Elijah appeared beside him so that whenever you hear so that in the Bible or so that in the church fathers, pay attention. You know, mm -hmm. he did this so that, right? So that they might know that he was the Lord of the of the prophets. He transformed his face on the mountain before he died, so that they would not be in doubt concerning the transfiguration of his face after his death he changed the garments which he was wearing they became like white right so that they might know that it is also he who will raise to life the body with which he was clothed he who gave his body a glory that no one could can reach is able to raise it to life from the death that everyone tastes i love seeing oh, that so why was Jesus transfigured, transfigured on Mount Tabor? So that Peter and James and John might know who this is, that when his death comes, they will, be, they will know what is about to happen, right? Yeah. He's, so he's transfigured to strengthen them. Yeah, I'm sorry, Annie. I'm totally, you probably had questions in here. Go ahead. Well, I, I'm just, want, I mean is saint ephraim saying there like this is so peter and james and john might recognize jesus after the resurrection in a glorified state am i taking that quote too far i don't know okay. yes and no but I, I think before that is to say to Maybe that's a, a secondary point, but more importantly, to be strengthened for the cross. Sure, 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 sure. Right? To be yeah. to say so so that they don't run away. Of course, they do run away, but 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 so uh, to give them that strength for the the what's coming, catechumens. 
you're about to go to the cross. You're about to be baptized. Can you be baptized with a baptism with which I'm about to be baptized, Jesus is going to say to you, because your baptism isn't a matter of getting dressed up and everybody, you know, they pour the water and everybody takes pictures and we have a nice time afterwards. St. Paul is very clear that when you are baptized, you die with Christ. You no longer are alive to your old life. You That died. It's over. And you've been given a new life now in Christ. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for, to carry your cross? Are you ready to be crucified with Christ? And so you can say, it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Are you ready? And for the rest of those members of the body of Christ, that's where we're heading. Because nobody's going to rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ. Now we know because Christ has shown us what he has prepared for us. Yeah, he's shown us this is not just a story of what happened 2000 years ago. This is today. We know what's coming. All of us will pass through the baptism of death. But all of us know because we, we've been we've been it's been revealed to us what we will be like through that veil. For we have seen it in Christ himself. And this, I think, ultimately, Annie, is, is what the transfiguration is about for the apostles and ultimately what it's about for us. Yeah. Not to take it back to like a surface level question here, but just in case there are some people that are, are joining us for the first time because it's Lent and they're, you know, wanting to dive more into these readings. Um, can you talk about where this is happening? Particularly, I'm kind of interested in relation to where we just, we were in the desert last week, like I said, right. and now we're on this mountain. Like where has Jesus yeah. gone? Okay, there's, there's, there's a few things. I'm gonna pull up some, some graphics here and show you guys. So here's the, the Holy Land and they see the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. The baptismal site is right here, just above the Dead Sea, just east of Jericho, like literally like, Remember, we talked about that last week, mm -hmm. the baptismal site. Okay, Jesus has now made his way up into Galilee. He's been ministering in this whole region, Capernaum, the whole area, okay? He's now come toward the end of his ministry. This is now three years later since that. So three years in one week, but this is what happens, okay? And he's now on Mount Tabor, which is west of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it here. It's not far from, from Nazareth not far from Cana on the way to the sea. It's a beautiful mountain. You see this picture here. Now the mountain is just coming, just bursting out of the ground. And it's a, it's an extremely important location because it was from this mountain that in the book of judges, uh, Sisera gained victory over the enemy. I shouldn't say Sisera. That's terrible. The Sisera, the enemy of God was destroyed. I'm going to Turn back to the book of Judges very quickly here. Judges chapter four. Judges and, chapter four. Hang on, hang on. Yep. Mama's there. Yep. All Judges right. chapter four. You with me? Yep, I'm here. Okay. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of, of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was one of the judges. Mm -hmm. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt 
in this place. Okay. Then the people of Israel cried to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, prophetess, the wife, now, now you say the Bible and the church is against women. No, here's a prophetess like Anna in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Hello. Okay. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidus, was judging Israel at the time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoah from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor. Now, at the base of Mount Tabor is the Jezreel Valley. Right, The Jezreel Valley is where all the great battles of salvation history took place. Everybody marched through Jezreel Valley. The Egyptians marched through Jezreel Valley. The Greeks, Alexander the Great marched through Jezreel Valley. The Romans marched through It's like the blood field. It's wow. where it's believed that it, 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 where it's where Armageddon is, where the, the battle of Armageddon is believed will take place is right there. Okay. Whoa. Yeah. Well, this is the spot where Deborah tells Barak to go and he gets up on the mountain and he comes charging down on Sisera and destroys him. And it's this mountain that Jesus chooses to be transfigured on, right? Because he's in for the, and the apostles know, I mean, they're standing. It's like you go to a, uh, the battlefields of like in Virginia or something like you can taste the battle. You can see it. You can hear it. Right. It's just, it's alive. It's there. It happened. Right. Well, this is what it was like for the apostles. And there Jesus is transformed and shows himself to be not only the earthly king, but the heavenly king. Yeah. In strengthening them for the battle, which is to come. And that battle, of course, is the cross. Hmm. It's only through that cross, through that battle, that they're going to come to victory in him. Wow. Well, I don't really know that I have any more questions about this. I got one. What's that? I got one. What? Yes, one. And that is Moses and Elijah. Go do it really fast. Why? Oh, Moses yeah, of course. I thought I asked question. that earlier. Of course. Yeah. Okay. No, it's sorry. Yeah. A good Why do Moses and Elijah show up? Yeah. It's always a good question to ask. And I'll simply say that both of these, well, the, the, the insight is given to us in the gospel of Luke. So if you go over the gospel of Luke chapter nine, which is Luke's account of the transfiguration, you'll get a little detail here. And again, we're not going to give a full exegesis of this whole business, but, but here, verse 31, verse 30. And behold, two men, are you with me? Luke mm-hmm. 9, verse 31. Sorry, verse 30. Luke mm-hmm. 9, verse 30. Behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The Greek word here is exodus mm-hmm. in, the, in the text. Okay, so this helps us out in the gospel of Matthew now as we kind of flip back there to realize that this whole thing is built upon the cross, right? It's, it's, it's like it's, it's framed by those conversations and Jesus saying, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be risen. I'm going to raise from the dead, right? And now they talk about his upcoming Exodus. Why Moses and Elijah? Because both of these guys had to get out of Dodge, right? Both of them, Moses knows about Exodus because he's getting out of Egypt. Elijah is in the Holy Land, but the king is evil and he's got to get out. He goes down the Jordan River, is taken up into heaven, the fiery chariot. Jesus is about to do this. Right. And so he brings to him 
these witnesses that were believed to appear. They were t- the Jews believed that both Moses and Elijah would return at the coming of the Messiah. Elijah, we know from the prophecy of Malachi that he would return. And uh, why? Because he never died, right? He was a, went up in the heaven of the fiery chariot. Moses, who died, but there's a tradition among the Jews that Moses's body was assumed into heaven mm. and reunited with his soul. And we pick up that, by the way, in the New Testament. Oh, my Protestant brothers and sisters are watching this. You're going to love this one. You, we just got to do it, and then we're going to move on, okay? We're going to turn to the epistle of Jude. Oh, so so uh, short, of course. The uh, Jude doesn't even have chapters. It's just one chapter. Jude, verse 8. Are you there? I'm Jude's there. right before the book of Revelation. If you can't find it, find the book of Revelation, which is the last book in your Bible. And boom, Jude's right there. Jude verse eight, yet in like manner, these men in their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority and revile the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil disputed with the body of Moses, disputed over the body of Moses. So here's the thing that Jude's picking up this tradition, which was known among the Jews in the Old Testament, that Moses's body was actually preserved by God and therefore appears right? There's an apocryphal text, an Old Testament text called the Assumption of Moses. Oh, cool. Okay? This is not some New Testament invention. This is pre-Christian, pre-New Testament stuff that they were handing on by oral tradition that then gets written down in the book of Jude. Wow. Jude is a traditionalist. Jude doesn't believe in sola scriptura, what is written is the only authority, because if he did, he'd have to reject the story of the assumption of Moses, but he doesn't. You see this? Okay, please. This is, I need to go on any further with that one, but that's a little side note. Anyways, Moses and Elijah appear with them and and talk about his upcoming exodus. Okay, here we go. And you're going to be supported then by the prophets and the law as you make your way to the cross of Christ, the whole of the scriptures, the whole of the word of God, the whole of the tradition, the whole of the people of God, catechumens, are witnessing to what is about to take place. Just as in in the life of Moses and the life of Elijah, God did not abandon his people. He's not going to abandon you regardless of your leaving your father and your your old life behind. You're going to get a new life, receive a new life in God. Which is precisely what St. Paul is telling Timothy in our epistle for this weekend. Second Timothy, right? Second Timothy chapter one. Second Timothy chapter one, verse eight. Eight B. Eight B. Yes, indeed. Now the church likes B verse, but anyways. (laughs) I'm gonna read from verse eight. I'll get I'll do the first verse in in from the new of RSV, and then we'll give you your new American, which is what the USCCB sure. is using. Okay, good. Okay. Verse, do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but take your share of suffering for the gospel in the power of God. Okay. So yeah. now we're gonna pick this up, beloved. Go ahead, beloved. Yeah, so uh, here we go. Beloved, bear your share of hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not according to our works, but according to his own design and the grace bestowed on us in Christ Jesus before time began. 
but now made manifest through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Yeah, and and of course, I'll just, as I get a little side note, we're not here talking about works in the sense of Christian doing stuff, right? We're talking about the the Levitical law, the law. and you can yeah. go and listen, especially the catechumens that are in here that may still be struggling with this whole thing. It's hard to get, it's hard to get Luther out of your head when you're reading Saint Paul, right? But of course, Luther was not in Saint Paul's head. Right. Yeah. So we have to read the, the text as it was intended. I would encourage you to go to participate in my brother's course on St. Paul. Super good. It's a great Lenten yeah. thing to do. Yeah. To go through the St. Paul course regarding which is has very much to do with this issue. Works of the law versus works of grace. Grace, which brings about a newness of life. St. Paul says in Romans chapter six, a newness of life, which is going to be given to you in which you are going to bear hardships for the gospel, right? For the good news. What is the good news? That Jesus is victorious. He's risen from the dead. And not only is Jesus risen from the dead, but you and I can participate in this truth, in this reality, if we are faithful to him, regardless of the difficulties which we face, Abraham coming out of the Chaldees, yeah, Peter uh, in the gospel, catechumen today. The Lord's going to be victorious through those hardships. If you keep your eye on the bright light of the resurrection, which is to come to Christ, our God, be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for